Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, published a few months ago by Verso. Russia and its leader, Vladimir Putin, exert a mysterious hold over what people call the West. For just over 70 years, an expanded version of Russia, the Soviet Union, was a major world power, a model of a different kind of economic system, a rival to the capitalist world led by the U.S., at once feared and disparaged. And then the USSR collapsed, which we were told for a long time could never happen. Its allegedly totalitarian system was frozen and presumably immortal. It collapsed into a wreck. The 1990s were a miserable time for the former Soviet Union, with Russia's entire society collapsing into impoverishment and early death. Its once mighty role in the world shrunk to insignificance, and led by a drunken and occasionally clownish Boris Yeltsin. American advisors told it how to run its government and economy. Yeltsin stole the 1996 election with plenty of assistance coming from U.S. political consultants and a timely loan from the IMF. That electoral meddling, which extended far beyond what Russia has been accused of in our 2016 election, is largely forgotten in the U.S., as well as Yeltsin's earlier shelling of the building housing the Russian parliament, just to show it who was boss. Yeltsin robbed the legislative branch of any power and consolidated the victory of neoliberalism in an extremely corrupt form in Russia. Yet somehow, he's remembered as a liberal in the West. The deep corruption and messy transition to capitalism left the Russian population miserable and confused. Vladimir Putin's ascension to the presidency in 1999 led to a stabilization of the country. The economic, political, and social collapse of Russia was halted and to some degree set into reverse with the turn of the millennium. That earned Putin a lot of credit, which lingers to this day. But his regime is hardly free of corruption, and as Tony Wood argues, there are many underappreciated continuities between the Yeltsin and Putin eras. But there's one important discontinuity. While the U.S. and its colleagues held a lot of sway over Russia in the 1990s, that's no longer the case. Russia is very much on its own now, pursuing an independent foreign policy, and Western powers aren't happy with that. Russia does have a lot of nuclear weapons, but its economy is still weak and dominated by exports of basic commodities like oil, minerals, and grain. Industry has still not recovered from the post-Soviet collapse, and although it was hardly globally competitive in those days, it did deliver a credibly stable standard of living to the domestic population. According to IMF estimates, Russian per capita GDP was 45% of U.S. levels in 1992. It's 46% today, essentially unchanged. That's a recovery from the low of 28% in 1998, the year the country defaulted in external debts, but the recovery of the last 20 years has managed just to get the Russian economy back to where it was before the collapse. What's going on in Russia? How much can be explained by the figure of Putin, who is invested with almost magical powers by many foreigners, a hybrid of Stalin and Rasputin, who likes to parade around shirtless and macho display? As Tony Wood argues in his book, Russia Without Putin, reality is a lot more complex. Putin, while no doubt a substantial figure, is not Russia. There's a lot more to the country than this former KGB officer turned politician. Here's Tony Wood, who's also a member of the editorial board of New Left Review, with more. Putin is such a, a magical figure to the Western imagination. You know, he seems to be controlling everything at times. What do you make of that particular obsession? Why so much focused on the personality of this guy, who is charismatic in some sense, but why the focus on this character? It's a good question. I think... There's, there's two different kinds of dynamic intersecting here. One is a very general one to do with how the media as a whole covers politics. And I think that's something we're seeing in the US, the UK, front, you name it. The media latches onto personalities as a key to explaining a political phenomena. And I think you'd have to spend a lot of time thinking about what has brought that about. To some extent, the focus on Putin is the same 
as the obsessive focus on Erdogan or Modi or any of these strongman figures or... Or Trump. Or Trump. Or in the UK, you know, this. I remember watching this happen in the UK, the, the presidentialization, if you like, of UK politics with the figure of Blair. The UK is not a presidential system. You don't elect a leader, but this is effectively what came to happen in successive elections, and it's now very much the case. Um, so that is a general dynamic, I would say, globally. The focus on Putin is a sort of exaggerated version of that. But I think it intersects with a very different dynamic, which is to do with Western knowledge about Russia in the Cold War period, uh, which I think has been overall drastically reduced. I think this is a phenomenon of you know cuts in funding to the study of Russia and the Eastern Bloc, the former Soviet states, and also just, I think, a loss of, of kind of a certain density of texture and understanding of Russia so that the, the Western media grafts onto personalities for lack of anything else. And then the other phenomenon, I think, which is part of these other two but exacerbates them is that this, this focus on personalities is actually self-confirming, that the more every given media report on Russia uh, has to refer to Putin. Every successive report also has to refer to him in, other, in order for people to make sense of what they're reading. It's become, you know, a commonplace that you now can't report about anything happening in Russia without it somehow referring to Putin. Whether it be pensioners in some remote part of Siberia, you have to relate that to Putin's regime or what it's doing or not doing for these people. Or, you know, reindeer herders in whichever place, it has to have some connection to whatever decisions Putin is or isn't making. Yeah, it's, it's those different dynamics. And I think in Russia, it's got particularly severe and particularly counterproductive. There's also the, re, uh, um, the exhumation and uh, reanimation of a whole bunch of Cold War tropes mm-hmm. uh, to the point where you even see slips of the tongue, people talking Soviet instead of Russia. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's entertaining, certainly. Um, and I think, again, in a way that does demonstrate the, the failure in the West to develop a framework for understanding contemporary Russia, that in, in the absence of a framework for really understanding it, people resort to either the very old and familiar tropes of the Cold War, which is comforting and safe, especially at times of increased tension, the instinct to default to that set of uh, terms and images is, is clearly very powerful. And the alternatives that are in general circulation, I'm, I mean, I'm not talking now about the academic community so much as among journalists and policymakers, they're really very thin and unsatisfactory alternatives like, uh, you know, mafia state, kleptocracy, they're extremely broad and they're not very useful in terms of understanding how this regime functions on a day-to-day basis. So you've got a lot of different tropes circulating that I think don't really uh, help explain Russia. They don't really attach to its reality in any very productive way. But the Cold War ones are certainly the most uh, emotive and powerful for Western audiences. I think the other reason those have proved uh, have made such a strong comeback is because they're the only uh, language that we in the West have to describe a Russia that has a foreign policy independent and distinct from that of the West. We lack the language to describe the concept of a great power Russia except in Cold War terms. Um, And that is on one level what we're seeing, right? A Russia that has its own foreign policy that is definitely distinct from and indeed contradictory to that of the West. But what's missing from that language, I think, is is a sense of the massive asymmetry between the West and Russia, as if these things are being described as if there's anything like the balance of Cold War power between these two 
components, and it's just not remotely the case. Russians uh, say that uh, you know the, these Western caricatures of the mighty Putin neglect the fact that the country itself is rather poor, and a whole lot of stuff doesn't work. I mean, it's, it, a lot of stuff is in collapse. Almost thirty years now after the uh, the end of the USSR, that this idea of the mighty Russia is just so at odds with the domestic reality of the country. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that people in Russia have been very conscious of for the last 30 years, this mismatch between its sense of historical importance and its Cold War grandeur and the, the, the sheer power of the weaponry it used to possess and its present condition. And that I think that mismatch, if you wanted a single image or concept to explain Russia's contemporary condition, that mismatch is really it. I mean, one of the, the things I, I, I cite in the book and that I, I like to wheel out because it's so... Uh, evocative is that when um, when Putin took power in 1999, uh, he wrote an article, a sort of programmatic statement of what his administration was going to do, uh, and he made this promise that if we all put our shoulders to the wheel and with favorable winds and a bit of good luck, within 15 years we could reach the GDP per capita of Portugal. That's ambitious. <laughs> it's highly ambitious, and the thing is, they made it. They made it in 2011, so ahead of schedule probably because of the high oil prices, etc. But the problem with this is that by 2011, Portugal had gone on ahead. So Portugal in 2011, which is, you know, as I'm sure your listeners will know, by that point it had spent several years in crisis, profound, you know, problems with the economy, massive youth unemployment, etc. It was one of the weakest economies in the Eurozone. But by 2011, its GDP per capita was one and a half times that of Russia. If you imagine that is the yardstick against which Russia economically should be measured... Uh, that just gives you a, sign, uh, a sense of, of, uh, of where it really stands in the global economic hierarchy. And obviously weighed against that, it has a massive nuclear arsenal. But these two components are massively out of sync with each other. And I think that needs to be borne in mind much more. And let's get on to Putin specifically. Um, uh, there's a cartoon version of Russian history over the last few decades, which is that uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Yeltsin, a drunken incompetent, inherited it. Everything fell to pieces, uh, and then Putin came to power 10 years later and uh, stabilized things and uh, now uh, runs the country with a fairly iron hand. How much truth is there to this caricature? I mean, I spend a good bit of time in the book trying to counter that overall perception, but I should also say that there, there are definitely contrasts between the two men. There are definitely differences in style and overall manner of governing, if you like, and certainly one of them was drunk and the other one is not. But I think a lot of the things that are uh, identified as contrasts between, or rather products of a contrast between Yeltsin and Putin as people, are actually much more related to shifts in Russia's economic fortunes and its global position over that time. What I describe in the book is really the relationship between Yeltsin and Putin as one of direct succession, but in a, in a systemic sense, right? What I'm trying to describe is a, is a system which... Uh, Yeltsin presides over the kind of turbulent phase of creation of that system. So that's why things are much more unstable. He's dismantling the planned economy, privatizing like crazy. Primitive accumulation. You might Primitive call. accumulation, precisely. And so he has all of the heavy lifting to do. Um, and by the time Putin arrives in you know, 1999, he presides over a phase of consolidation. And I think there's a lot of ways in which you can see this. I mean, for example, a lot of the constitutional provisions that Putin uses and his, his control over the parliament, all of that stuff, all of the heavy lifting for that was done by Yeltsin in the first half of the 90s. I mean, Russia has uh, a hyper-presidential constitution. The, the government can be fired and formed at will by the president. The composition of the government has nothing to do with who wins the majority in parliament. There's no necessary connection between those things. 
So even if, for example, an opposition party were to win a majority, there's nothing to say that the president would have to invite them to form a government. That constitution was put in place in uh, December of 1993, after a clash between Yeltsin and the parliament of the time. But that's when he shelled the parliament. And that's he? when he shelled the, the parliament. And so that... Parenthetically, a lot of American liberals literally do not remember. Right. Like you bring right. it up to them and they say, what? It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, because that's precisely the kind of autocratic behavior that people associate with Putin or with some other kind of dictator figures. And Yeltsin is seen as this sort of great uh, liberal sort of democratizing figure. He precisely did bring in a kind of liberal, hyper-presidentialized system, which you know, I would hesitate personally to call democratic in any sort of substantive or even procedural sense. I think there are a lot of flaws in it. Certainly it was more democratic than the Soviet system in terms of people's capacity to vote and affect electoral outcomes, but that's that's a very narrow definition of democracy, but we can get onto that. The Yeltsin system really was forged in that clash between president and parliament, uh, which he resolved by bombing the parliament in his submission and putting through a constitution that really sidelined this parliament. So the, the towering dominance of Putin over the Russian political landscape was made possible by Yeltsin. And that's something I think people neglect generally. They think that Putin created this whole thing himself and he really did not. So there's that. And I think economically as well, you can imagine that the collapse of the planned economy, the, the deliberate dismantling of the planned economy in the early 1990s, this was a period of profound crisis for Russia. The GDP contracted by, I think, at least a third. You had sudden mass unemployment. The population was shrinking. Right? The population was shrinking. There was a lot of excess mortality. There's been a, a very interesting debate about this between doctors who presumably have a lot of evidence on their side and, uh, on the other hand, the economists who deny all this. So I would believe the doctors. <laughs> I would believe the doctors on that one too. And they've, they've calculated that there was you know, phenomenal excess mortality in Russia in the early 1990s as a direct product of the recession that followed the fall of the USSR. So you can see that Yeltsin is having uh, a lot more He's having this sort of direct, very negative impact on the country, and that has a kind of delegitimizing effect on the whole concept of democracy, right? That he's, he's presiding over this really a demographic, economic, social disaster with some political minor compensations like being able to vote for parties that can't do anything. But then the population was completely disoriented. Yeah. Everything they had known in life had been completely turned upside down. No security. You know, for all the problems of the Soviet system, there was a high level of security and certainty about your present and future. Mm -hmm. That was all taken away, and people were immensely confused, right? Yes, absolutely. That whole disorientation of the 90s is very powerful. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Russia in the 1990s, and it was just very much present in the everyday experience that, that people really didn't know what was happening. I mean, one of the things that, you know, it's still the case to some extent, and people in the West are now familiar with this as the gig economy, but essentially if you imagine you had these highly trained nuclear scientists who were still going to their institute by day but not getting paid, and then they would be, I don't know, they'd be driving a cab or cleaning apartments in order to make the actual money they needed to survive. There was both the geopolitical confusion of being in this sort of collapsed state that used to be powerful and no longer was, but also day-to-day -day the confusion of who you were, what you even did for a living, how your job defined your kind of social status, social condition. So there's a lot of confusion of all different kinds. I'm speaking with Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, published by Verso. The elite, the ruling class uh, that emerged out of that, there are continuities with the Putin years and discontinuities. So what kind of ruling class emerged out of the Yeltsin years and then how did that get transformed uh, under Putin? The most famous figures of the Russian elite are, of course, known as the oligarchs. This is sort of an interesting term which enters the lexicon in Russia in 
uh, in the mid-1990s because at that point these very powerful figures seem to in many ways have such a tight hold over the government that they, they even enter government posts that it seems like the country is being run by a very small group of incredibly wealthy people. But one of the interesting things is if you look at the composition of this group in the mid-1990s, it looks very much like a group of tycoons who really made their money in the early 1990s out of the uh, disintegration of the planned economy, right? These were all sort of canny operators who, you know, made money off uh, currency arbitrage or uh, acquiring assets on the cheap and then somehow through all sorts of creative accounting and possibly skullduggery raising the value of those assets. You quote one study with some of the, some of the like half were insiders and the other half were not. Like, well, what's the inside-outside distinction? Right, that's the, yeah, so the, the, the guys I was just referring to would be classed as outsiders because they had no real kind of position or connection within the old Soviet system. Insiders were people who used to be, for example, factory managers in the Soviet period or they would have been high-level apparatchiks or or even just regional party figures. So they had some set of connections in the old system. And what happened as the economy uh, was privatized in the early 1990s was that those positions, those key positions turned into kind of ways to uh, acquire assets very, very cheaply, but that were worth billions. So a lot of those kind of managerial figures made sizable fortunes in the early 1990s, and they would be classed as the insiders. And then there are also the figures who, you know, maneuvered their way into large fortunes as well, who would be the outsiders. And that was just luck and canniness, some combination? Luck and canniness. I mean, you know, one would have to look into this in in great detail in, in, in the different cases. There's also clearly a bit of, I imagine, a lot of sort of dodgy dealings of various kinds, skullduggery, use of force, connections with crime. I would not be at all surprised. So it is primitive accumulation in, in all of those senses, I think. I mean, and I should say that's not that doesn't just apply to the outsiders, the insiders too. That you know, these were, for example, there would often be a factory which nominally was privatized, and the workers bought shares in it. But then the managers would somehow find a way to magically get hold of all the shares. For example, the shares are pieces of paper worth nothing, and you could actually give the workers a bit of cash in exchange for those shares, and the workers needed cash to survive. So you could you could actually buy an entire factory for very little because the workers would rather have food than a piece of paper with a share in a company that was about to collapse. Yeah, I think you quote one statistic, the entire like Soviet productive structure is capitalized at the same level as Anheuser-Busch or something. Yes, that's right. That's <laughs> Remarkable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's from uh, the David Hoffman, the, the Washington Post bureau chief in Moscow in the 1990s, uh, did a very good book on, on the oligarchs in the 1990s. I should say also that, that the 1990s, you know, I've, I've We've just been talking about this uh, distinction between insiders and outsiders. In the 1990s, the outsiders were the people who made the most money. And one of the reasons for that is that the insiders tended to own factories, physical infrastructure, minerals, plants, whatever it was, that were not making much money, that were in a state of severe collapse in the first half of the 1990s at least. Whereas the, uh, the outsiders tended to own intangible assets, banks, media outlets, uh, and these things just made a lot more money. They were more connected to the government and to government revenues, especially banking. Uh, so they were really in the ascendant. What happens under Putin in the 2000s, uh, and especially with the commodities boom and a certain amount of economic recovery in Russia, is that the, the balance between insiders and outsiders flips. So at that point, it's really the insiders who are making the money. You know, if you own a steel plant or a nickel mine or whatever it is, these are the people really making the money. 
A lot of the banks go bust with the 1998 ruble crash, so a lot of those oligarchs are out. So the the, the terms of the relationship between inside and outsiders uh, shift. From the outside, what this is often seen as Putin attacking the oligarchs, right, and dismantling them as a class. But the massively inconvenient fact here when people talk about Putin taking the oligarchs out is that the number of billionaires in Russia has just continued to increase under Putin. There is no, there's been no attack. There's a particular crew of uh, oligarchs who's going after it. There is a particular crew. I mean, there are certainly people who have done well out of being connected closely to him, but there are also people who are not that closely connected to Putin who have done very well just by owning natural resource plants, factories, this kind of stuff. So, I mean, the the number of billionaires, I think it's something like 150, a bit more. I, I Don't quote me on that, but the, the numbers that have... I mean, what's interesting is in the year 2000, when Putin took over, there were actually zero billionaires in Russia because of the 1988 ruble collapse. Sort of there was a bit of an economic downturn after that, and that wiped out banking. But over the 2000, you go from zero to something like 150 or more uh, last year. So, you know, the idea that Putin has dismantled the oligarchs as a class, which is what he rhetorically promised to do when he took over, is just a total fiction. Headline figures like Berezovsky, though, that mm-hmm. made it look like he was doing that, right? Yeah, oh, Khodorkovsky yeah. Is rather and Khodorkovsky, too, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's another dimension to this. Uh, I mean, that economic reversal that I'm describing is, is, I think, is important in the aggregate with the, the billionaire class overall. But f- there are, you know, a handful of figures right at the top, like uh, Boris Berezovsky, uh, and Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who were taken out by Putin for different reasons. Berezovsky was a very prominent figure in the 1990s. He uh, was for a brief time in the Yeltsin government. And I mean, there are some wonderful quotes from him from around that time, saying essentially what is good for capital is good for Russia. And, you know, the interests of the government and capital are basically the same. I mean, he's what's good for GM is good for America. Very much in that spirit. <laughs> And Putin marginalized him, sort of hounded him out into exile. But the reason for that is Berezovsky was really, in the late 1990s, the kingmaker figure. And he was one of the people who led the plan, if you like, to to make Putin Yeltsin's successor. So this is a sort of classic, very Shakespearean move, right? That Putin knows who put him there and who he owes debts to, and he can't have that kind of figure hanging around. So he marginalized Berezovsky, and Berezovsky then went into exile in the UK. Khodorkovsky, the explanation is slightly different, but again, it's to do with having... Khodorkovsky certainly had pretensions to a political role. So he was funding opposition parties. There were kind of rumors of him making a presidential run in 2008, and he was arrested in 2003. I think the thing with Khodorkovsky, there are so many different reasons why Putin would want to marginalize him that it's hard to really separate all of those out. But I think the predominant one really is to to sort of neutralize the possibility of all of this private wealth being used to mount a political challenge to the system. Yeah, let, let's talk about the relation between that private wealth and the political system. It's complicated anywhere you look, but uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people uh, imagine, people in the West imagine that because Putin came out of the KGB, you know, he's the mighty uh, figure directing everything. What about the relation between these um, enormously wealthy characters and, and the state? There's a key moment uh, a little bit after Putin comes to power as president, so that's you know the spring of 2000, he has a meeting with, I think, 20 top oligarchs, for want of a better term. And he lays out the, term of a new, the terms of a new relationship. He says something like, uh, the state will remain equidistant from all of you, and in exchange from this, uh, you will refrain from politics. Broadly speaking, that was the message he gave them. So 
and you can see this is, you know, around about this time, you know, Roman Abramovich goes off and buys an English football club. They all sort of wander off and buy yachts. They're all very, very hands off about the national political scene, uh, except for Khodorkovsky. And so he's the one who gets neutralized. In terms of the relationship between money and power, this is, yeah, it is complicated. What I try and do in the book is to describe the emergence of that, you know, this whole elite in the post-Soviet period and to show the close interdependence of money and power. I think there is a very strong kind of ideological uh, presupposition, if you like, in the West among, especially among liberals, that there is, you know, this overbearing state. And on the other hand, there is just private wealth trying to do what it does best and, and make money for all of us and create jobs and wealth, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's all that anxiety at places like The Economist that, you know, they're, they're going back to the Soviet days and renationalizing stuff. We're going back to the planned economy. Right. And yeah, this sort of creeping kind of state takeover and this is getting in the way of private investment and so on. There are lots of things about that that are fake. I mean, everywhere, including in the West, of course. But in the Russian case, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that the, the one of the areas where the state takeover, if you like, is most visible is in uh, oil and energy. Right. And the economists and the FT have been sort of screaming about this for years. But what's interesting is that globally, of course, you know, state ownership of oil companies is the norm. It's actually the U.S. that's the exception. I mean, if you look at Saudi Arabia, Norway, I mean, yeah, Norway, very, a terrifying uh, model, Norway. terrifying model. So what the Russians have done is essentially switch back from the U.S. model to something more in between that and the global norm, because, you know, there are private oil companies in Russia still. And I think the other sort of factor here is that people read Putin as some kind of, you know, Soviet-style statist or something like this, which I think is just totally implausible. There are things Putin, well, it's debatable whether he himself wrote them, but he has a PhD. He's published articles in the 1990s about the relationship between the state and natural resources. Yeah, again, not clear whether he wrote them. There's a lot of allegations of plagiarism, but he certainly put his name on them. And the view that's laid out in these articles is actually quite interesting. It's that, that the state has a role in certain strategic sectors. The commanding heights. The commanding heights, as it were, yeah. But everything else should be left to private enterprise. And so what you have in Russia now is an economy that, that you know, there is a state presence. It's not bigger than in most of Western Europe. Um, and there is a lot of stuff that's left to private enterprise. Where it becomes complicated, of course, is in the degree of corruption, so there are a lot of things private enterprise can't do without paying off some part of the state. The other complicating factor, I think, is that a lot of the state companies don't act in the interests of the state, right? They act as, you know, profit maximizers. And a lot of the revenues, though nominally from a state company, are going into, you know, Swiss bank accounts of one figure or another. So there's a sense in which the, the kind of financial presses panic over the state takeover of Russian economy is just totally baseless because even when it does happen, that money isn't going to useful things like education and healthcare. It's going to more wealth creation by people who happen to be employed by the state. That's the first part of my interview with Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin from Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of a guitar version of the Russian National Anthem by Sean Atwood DeVries, inspired, obviously, by Jimi Hendrix. I know nothing about this version except that I found it in the Internet some years ago. And now on to part two of my interview with Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, from Verso. The uh, reformers of the 80s and 90s used to talk about making Russia a normal country. But what you're describing sounds more or less like a normal country. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not normal in... That's not the sense of normal that they meant. No, right? it's certainly not. But, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a political scientist at UCLA, Daniel Treisman, who wrote an article several years ago, I guess maybe 10, 15 years ago, using this term a normal country. But what he meant was you would expect Russia to have the, uh, the same kind of structural problems, the same kind of degrees of corruption, all of the symptoms that a middle-income country would have. And so the measure for Russia is not... Scandinavia or Western Europe or Canada, but actually somewhere like Indonesia. And I mean, the, the, the thrust of that article was, in a sense, to be less critical of Putin or Russia for not measuring up to Western standards of transparency and corruption and stuff, which I think one could still be critical, uh, and one would be critical of the Indonesians too. But yeah, that is not the sense of normal that the liberals had in mind. Russian democracy, um, he- quote the, the phrase several times, managed democracy, or, you know, I think, but, you know, actually Walter Lippmann talked about having a managed democracy in, in the United States long ago. So uh, it's, sometimes it seems as if Western democracies are heading in that kind of direction uh, with, with less and less, you know, popular role, power over government, and more and more the appearance of democracy with an authoritarian uh, reality. What about the state of opposition in Russia now? You point out that there was very little opposition uh, when uh, Yeltsin was in power. Even though the country was falling apart, people were miserable, but there was very little opposition to him. There are reasons that Russians have to be discontented now, and opposition is still, you know, it's not non-existent, but it's fairly muted. Yeah. What's it look like? I think this is also often quite hard to measure in Russia. I mean, one of the reasons is that, that because the 90s were just such a disaster for most people, almost everyone, I would say. The 2000s, where there's been a large degree of recovery or even some people have reached a degree of prosperity, there is just a, a, a fundamental uh, baseline of support for Putin that, that it, it would take a lot for people to think something else would be better. Now, he won a landslide victory, and they didn't make up the results, right? It was, I mean, you could say it was not a regular election in all the right. senses, but on the other hand... He is popular. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't doubt that if you, if all of those elections had been run scrupulously cleanly, he would still have won. I, I don't think anyone actually contests that. Um, I think he does have a majority of popular support. I mean, and for some very basic reasons, right? In the 1990s, pensioners were just sort of starving or impoverished. And one of the things Putin did was to just pay pensions in full and on time. Very simple. And he managed it. And this is why pensioners are a solid pro-Putin voting bloc now, which... You know, in other countries, they might not be. Opposition to Putin, I, I have a, a sort of chapter in the book where I, I sort of try and lay out what I think is the important distinction, that there is a, a political opposition, if you like, that's very focused on the political system, the, the, the ruling party, United Russia, the corruption of government figures. And that tends to be quite sort of uh, urban-based, predominantly the sort of more educated quote-unquote middle-class uh, part of the population. And that's focused around figures like uh, Alexei Navalny, the anti-corruption campaigner. Um, but then there's also, you know, other kinds of, well, oppositionists who've recently uh, passed away, like Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated. But there is a kind of political opposition that's very focused on, on 
making the existing system functional and pushing and a lot of their critique of it is that it's insufficiently capitalist, insufficiently liberal, so their their idea would be to push that transformation even further, if anything. These people like sound like some of the heirs of the reformers of the eighties and nineties. Very much. Some of them are the same people. There's Grigory Yavlinsky who is a kind of who represented a pretty narrow strata in the society and are perceived as having led the country to disaster. Yeah, very much. I think these people, you know, they don't poll at all well. And I think if they ran an election, they would not do well at all. I mean, they, they, the fact is, uh, this guy, Grigory Yevlinsky, had a, a party, or still does have a party, called uh, Yabloko, which means apple. But he, um, you know, that party didn't make the threshold for parliament back in 2000, and, uh, I think 2003. And so he's, but it, it's been an extra-parliamentary opposition uh, dominated by liberals, uh, oh, also Gary Kasparov is a key figure, or was until he went into exile. Yeah, so there is a kind of liberal opposition, if you like. And there are some small left movements as well. There's the Russian Socialist Movement, there's Red Front. I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of anarchist groups as well. But these are really tiny group of schools that I don't think have any real purchase in the population. The oddity, really, in terms of opposition is the Communist Party, uh, which is still pretty sizable, still has a national presence, uh, can still mobilize large numbers of voters. It, it regularly gets something like 25% of the vote, and it's present in parliament. But it really doesn't play the role of an opposition to the existing system. It's very much within the existing system. I mean, in Russia, they have this term, systemic opposition, meaning within the system. And so that's how they identify the Communist Party. And so it's not really going to be an anti-Putin movement in any sense, and it's not really aiming to supply any alternative to the current model, I think. Outside of those sort of circles, there is also, I think, a much more diffuse kind of inchoate set of social movements. Again, also very small in number, very geographically dispersed. But uh, what I think is interesting about them is that they're taking aim at different aspects of the, of the present system um, and its social and economic outcomes, particularly. They're less focused on the political and more on, you know, for example, housing or like privatization of education uh, and medicine, um, I mean, of healthcare. Uh, and there are sort of ecological movements as well. And then there's some oddities like uh, activists for uh, enforcement of traffic laws on officials. They're known as the blue buckets. Um, so this is a very kind of heterogeneous set of uh, movements and people that I think could have some role to play in the future, but then I hesitate to call them an opposition per se. So th that's sort of a picture of like the whole oppositional landscape. But of course, you know, as you said, these are really very small in number and they, they don't weigh very much relative to the, uh, the Putin majority, if you like. So the title of your book, Russia Without Putin, you're, you're looking at Russia minus that personality and trying to look at the structure um, that behind him or supporting him or whatever relation you want to um, lay out. But um, what about a Russia without Putin personally? Well, I mean, a post-Putin Russia look that much different from Putin's Russia? Uh, obviously, who knows? But I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, this is a question that, that people have been thinking about in Russia uh, recently. I think that one of the weird effects of the 2018 election, which happened... And he has a six-year term. So he has a six-year term, and got some so time he left. won in March 2018. He has a six-year term, so he's, barring anything unusual happening, he's there until 2024. But he then can't run again, unless they change the constitution. Uh, and so one of the slightly peculiar things in Russia, I was there last summer, 
that people were already thinking ahead to 2024 as if the intervening six years, you know, was guaranteed nothing was going to happen. But what happens in 2024? I mean, I think there is already some speculation about, oh, who could be the successor be? Who is going to emerge from within the presidential administration? In a sense, I don't think that's really an important question because it could be any number of people and we're not going to see people really manoeuvring for the role until very late on in the process because the earlier people try and do it and build a power base to do that, the more likely they are to be taken out by their rivals. I think the real question is whether the system itself uh, can continue to function with or without Putin, right? I think Is it robust enough? Is it robust enough, right? And I think what a lot of people seem to believe is that without Putin, it simply can't function. Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think it can function perfectly well without him. I mean, there is a question of what he personally does, like whether he retires, you know, goes and sits by the Black Sea in this huge palace that was built for him. Um, does he then not intervene in politics or does he have a kind of semi-distant, you know, role? But I still think the system as it is has structural problems that are going to emerge and pose a problem for it, uh, I mean, pose a severe challenge for it before too long. I think one of them is that um, the, the the economic boom on which its support was based is really, you know, it's run out. Uh, I mean, it, it can still sell oil and natural resources, but it's very dependent on swings in the those kind of global prices. Yeah, they really, there's no industry to speak of, right? It's just, so much as oil and commodities. It's oil and commodities is really the, the just the lion's share of the economy. They do have some sort of manufacturing still, but it's, it's geared to markets that are not going to make them much money. I mean, they export a lot of stuff to the former Soviet Union, a, a few things to the Middle East, but one of the other things that they export a lot, I guess this comes on the commodities, but uh, grain. They become one of the world's biggest grain exporters. Uh, I think after Canada. So they have, you know, huge grain exports to the Middle East now and parts of Latin America. So there are, oh, and weapons they do make a lot of. So they do have other things in a sort of manufacturing sector that's sort of limping along. Uh, but these are not high value goods and they're not really a long term strategy. So they, they, they don't have uh, a strategy which could fund the kind of overhaul of infrastructure, the kind of transformation of of the country that would really set them up well as a, as a, even as a political system for the next 10 15 years. So I think what you're looking at currently is is a system that will have to administer a series of crises, uh, political, economic or otherwise. And the question is whether it's robust enough to do that. I'm not sure that it is precisely because it has over time become increasingly rigid, uh, politically inflexible and as a result it has very little way of there are very few things to mediate between this regime and the population as a whole. Uh, one of the signs of this, actually, I think, is that last summer the, the Russian government announced that it would be raising the pension age for men and women. They announced this just when the World Cup, uh, the Soccer World Cup, was kicking off, um, hoping that people wouldn't notice, I think. And this was hugely unpopular. And there were large demonstrations across the country all summer. Something like 90% of the population was opposed to this. They managed to still push it through in a slightly modified form. But it's hard to see that as anything else than a kind of an assault on social provision on what's left of the Soviet welfare state. And what's interesting about that whole phenomenon... They, they've been coasting on a lot of the physical and social infrastructure right. that the Soviet Union left behind, right? Right, right, exactly. And they've just decided a lot of this stuff is now unaffordable and we can't do this. 
but the interesting thing about the pension reform was that you know there was no meaningful debate about it in the parliament the parliament is not the place where these political battles were held where the the views of the population were heard what happened was the reform was announced people took to the streets the government measured how discontented people were and then you know a month later modified it a bit and that was the reform form in which it passed so what you see there is this peculiar circuit where whenever the government has to do something unpopular they will announce a harsh version and then see how much they have to step back but that's a very bad way of doing politics there is no there's no mechanism for thrashing out differences for hearing out the population's views you just announce it and then deal with whatever response comes now stalin didn't have to worry about that response. right right exactly <laughs> I'm speaking with Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, published by Verso. But what about confrontation with the West? I mean, we see the, all this talk of a new Cold War, you know, the, the tensions in Syria, the expansion of NATO, all this business, uh, Russia trying to act more like a big power. Uh, gone are the days when uh, Bill Clinton uh, and Harvard University could tell uh, Russia how to run its policies. So uh, what about this new Cold War rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, I'm very skeptical of the term new Cold War, obviously. I mean, to some extent, if people think there's a Cold War, and then, you know, there is. But I think there's something very different about this setup. I mean, one of the features of the Cold War, obviously, was that it was a global confrontation between ideological systems and socioeconomic models. I mean, it was a, it was a very large, the stakes were very large, and it unfolded in theatres across the globe. Uh, it made a difference to governments in, you know, everywhere from Southeast Asia, Latin America, where, Central Africa, wherever. Sometimes people dismiss those ideological differences, but they were real. I think they were very real. I think they it, were very you know, important. These were just very substantively different ways of organizing life. I think, and that's not what's at stake here. I think on a lot of fundamental things, Russia and the West actually agree. In terms of economic policy, in terms of how an economy should be run, the the raising of the pension age I just mentioned is actually a case in point. Governments all over the world have been trying to do this, right? And the Russians are no exception, and the IMF was delighted with them for doing it. So there's, there's actually a, a certain amount of convergence on economic policy and social questions uh, beneath the clash between really rival blocks of states. So I think what we're seeing is really not a Cold War, but actually just the eventual meeting of a Russia that has distinct interests and is willing rhetorically and in some cases materially to defend those interests versus the US and its allies who don't have to pay any attention to that uh, and who can override those interests. And so we see, you know, the continuing expansion of NATO. I mean, they admitted uh, Montenegro just uh, in 2017, just further expansion. Uh, and, you know, the absorption of Ukraine into the kind of Western orbit of influence has also been part of that. Facts which make the Russians nervous, but you know, in American discourse it barely enters. You know, we don't think that maybe the Russians are annoyed by this, uh, this NATO creep. And right, and I think, again, that just illustrates the huge asymmetry because, you know, the fact that Ukraine should be in the Western sphere of influence is just taken as a given. I mean, and not just in the US, but also in Europe. It's like, why, how could Ukraine not be part of the sort of greater EU community? What's wrong with you? You know, this is what, how it's seen. And, you know... And forget about those Nazis in the government. Right, right, exactly. So there's the... Yeah, I think the fact that, that, that there's a whole series of things that don't enter into calculation for the West because they don't really don't have to. They don't have to think about this stuff. Whereas for Russia, obviously, it's much more vital and much more kind of bound up with their, their sense of 
identity and security as a state. I mean, this is a very deep complex. The relationship between Russia and Ukraine is obviously hugely complex and difficult and historically loaded in all kinds of directions. But I think the, the, the relative importance of, I mean, even if you abstract from that massive historical relationship, the, the strategic significance of Ukraine to Russia would, enough, would be enough on its own for it to be a concern for Russia to have the government of that country under the, the strong influence of uh, a power that is effectively hostile to Russia. And I should say, this is not to say that Russia therefore has a right to control the government of Ukraine. I'm not, I would definitely not advocate that. I, or, but I think, um, and I should also, you know, make clear that I don't think the annexation of Crimea was legitimate in the form in which it was conducted. But I think the, the relationship between Russia and the West, it, it's reached a sort of quite peculiar point now where there is this very heightened rhetoric. There is this idea that a Cold War is happening. There is a great deal of weaponry on the ground in all of these places. And I, like everyone else, hope it doesn't actually come to open warfare. Um, I, I somehow, uh, my feeling is that it's unlikely to come to open warfare, but that's assuming a degree of rationality that I think a lot of the actors on the ground here don't possess. That's how we got through the first Cold War. Right, right. And, and, the, and a lot of people are making mention of World War One, right? That this is actually how it happened too, to some extent. Um, the problem really is I don't quite see how any of the, the powers involved in this clash I don't really see an exit from this that's, uh, that they're likely to take. But uh, Russia is a country that obviously can't be pushed around, ultimately because of all those bombs. But it's also a country with very little in the way of soft power um, and very little in the way of uh, um, economic power. It, it's kind of hard to see how the, these two sides can work out this kind of conflict, given the, the, this mix of equality and weaponry, but everything else underneath it is very, vastly unequal. How does that kind of conflict work out? Yeah, that's, I think that's the key question, you know, not just at the moment, but, you know, for the next century, that, that what is the place of Russia in the international system of states, right? I think it's very unclear what role Russia is going to play. Uh, and it has a lot of its own strategic dilemmas. I think it's been, it's spent much of the last 30 years trying to integrate with the West or form some kind of alliance there may now be a sort of tilt towards China, but they're also very wary of getting absorbed by China economically, politically, and otherwise. So there's a, there's a sense in which... Be China's Mexico, as you think. Yes, right. That's, that's the term I came up with. And so there's a, there's a sense in which Russia is tilting between these sort of different strategic emphases. And I think, in a way, it doesn't want to resolve either of them. You know, it doesn't want to resolve it too far in either direction. I think from the West's point of view, the, the real question that I think people are not really willing to ask is... What does the West think Russia's role in the international system is? Because I think there is no real place where the where Russia can fit in in the West's idea of how the global system is supposed to work. Russia is either supposed to be a close ally that didn't work out, but there is there isn't a sort of independent floating role for Russia. I think it, it ends up being categorized. Therefore, if it's not going to be subordinate, it's going to be an enemy because it's too big and powerful to just leave floating around out there, right? And I think there, it isn't really clear to me what the West thinks Russia should do. So that kind of, it's both an awkwardly sized, you know, too big to, to ignore, not powerful enough to play a hugely positive role. I think the other thing that's really significant with, with Russia is just the weight of all of the previous 
decades of Cold War confrontation. I mean, in terms of economic weight and strategic significance, you could imagine you could compare Russia to one of the so-called BRICS, right, an emerging quote-unquote economy like Brazil or India or, you know, one of the larger countries of that kind. But it has this massive nuclear arsenal and the West is not going to relate to Russia in the way it relates to Brazil or India, right? That, that currently, historically speaking, is just not, uh, not likely. But if you start imagining Russia as filling some kind of, as, as being on that scale, then one might have to think about, okay, so what is the role that Brazil is going to play in 2050 or 2100? Um, and imagine Russia in that role. And I think that that does seem implausible, but in a way the distance between those two things is a sign of certainly the West's collective lack of imagination, perhaps. That was Tony Wood, author of Russia Without Putin, from Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. From those confusing Slovenian ironists Leibach, Russia, from their 2006 album Folk, which means people in German and wolf in Slovenian. It's a mashup lyrically of the current Russian national anthem, the old Soviet national anthem, Paul Robeson's adaptation of that anthem, and the Internationale. Till next week, bye. From the Arctic Sea.